welcome to City Breaks London, episode 18, Greenwich. I'm Marion Jones. City Breaks is my pet project. We're on our eighth city now. Do go back and check out some of the others if you don't know them. Florence, Munich, St. Petersburg, etc. Hopefully you'll find I've achieved my aim, which is to provide lots of the historical and cultural background it would be useful to have in your head before you go and visit said city, or perhaps because you're thinking of going, or maybe just from a general interest point of view. London's looking set to be the longest of all the series so far. Already done lots of episodes on the central London big hitters. And now I'm on a little tour of the outlying areas that you really ought to visit as well, if you've got the time. And today, what could be nicer than that fabulous day out from central London territory of Greenwich, somewhere where you can get a whiff of sea air, a definite maritime feel, enjoy a lot more space and a lot more greenery than you get in most of central London. A place chock full of history, a place with lots to interest the scientists too, somewhere where astronomers with their quadrants and telescopes solved the problem of navigating the globe and knowing where you were going, and worked out ways of measuring time to a degree of accuracy previously unheard of. All of that to come. But let's start with the thoughts of the author Daniel Defoe, who raved about Greenwich, liked it very much on his tour through the whole island of Great Britain, as his diary was called, written in the 1720s, he wrote the following about Greenwich. It is, he said, the most delightful spot of ground in Great Britain, pleasant by situation, those pleasures increased by art, and all made completely agreeable by the accident of fine buildings, the continual passing of fleets of ships up and down the most beautiful river in Europe. I am with him on the beauty of the setting and the loveliness of the buildings. I don't know if everybody would say they thought the Thames was literally the most beautiful river in Europe. But there. So, by way of scene setting, picture yourself standing on the riverbank, in the heart of Greenwich, on something called the Five Foot Walk, a little pathway expressly designed for you to stand there so that you can see Greenwich at its best. It will smell of seawater, because the Thames is tidal, There's even a tiny scrubby little bit of beach, and if you cast your eyes across the river, you'll see the O2 in North Greenwich. Turn round the other way, and you have the most wonderful vista. You're looking through a symmetrical pair of buildings, the old Royal Navy College. Places you might want to visit a little bit later, the Painted Hall and the Chapel. And if you look beyond them, through the gap in the middle, you will see the Queen's House. Designed in the very early 18th century, for Queen Anne, wife of James I, but associated in fact after that with several other queens too. And stretching away behind that, up a hill, Royal Greenwich Park, leading up to the Royal Observatory, and with lots and lots of other goodies to happen upon if you wander around. Roman remains, flower gardens, and, wait for it, Queen Caroline's bath, all that remains of the house where Queen Caroline used to hold her orgies. I kid you not. The not very loved, at least by her husband, wife of George the Fourth, she had a high old time in these parts before leaving the country in disgust in 1804, at which point George had the house demolished and only the bathhouse remains. And standing here looking at all of this, I think you will definitely be aware of a very maritime atmosphere. The whiff of salty water, those very large, imposing, symmetrical, orderly buildings that navy types like. And you'll be thinking, No wonder they made this a World Heritage Site. It is quite something to behold. The poet Alexander Pope stood here too, 
and then went off and composed a verse about the very pleasing juxtaposition of the hill and the woodlands and the palace. It reads like this. No place on earth, he cried, like Greenwich Hill. Up starts a palace. Lo, the obedient base slopes at its foot. The woods its sides embrace. The silver Thames reflects its marble face. If you are a regular City Breaks listener, you'll know that history plays a big part in all the episodes. What are you looking at? And what historic moments happened there in times past? This is a very easy game to play in Greenwich, except that, unfortunately, the palace that you need to picture isn't actually there anymore. But I hope you'll forgive me for talking about the site anyway, because I think it's absolutely fascinating. So, when you stand with your back to the river, looking up past the old naval college, etc., what you need to picture is the former Palace of Greenwich, a red brick building which was on that very site, and was for quite some years the principal London residence of Henry VIII, no less, until the 1530s, when the Palace of Whitehall was finished and he moved there. Okay, so picture a red brick palace, built at the very end of the 15th century, begun in 1498, I think, by Henry VII. Picture a central square tower dominating the river frontage. Those were the king's private apartments. Picture the idea of a ceremonial approach by river, so when guests were invited, they would arrive by boat and walk up the approach that you're looking at now. Imagine the tilt yard, built for tournaments and jousting and whatnot. The extensive palace gardens. A little royal footbridge leading behind the palace back over what is still today the main road to the parkland. Said to be the very spot where Sir Walter Raleigh laid his cloak over a puddle to allow Queen Elizabeth to pass by without getting her feet wet. Picture too a banqueting house and a theatre. In all, a place of pleasure and entertainment. The very best that could be managed at the very beginning of the 16th century. And let me just outline a few of the major historical events that happened in that very building or in those grounds. Okay, so Henry VI honeymooned here in a building which preceded even the Greenwich Palace. Henry VII had it rebuilt and renamed as Greenwich Palace, and it was here that his son, Henry VIII, was born to his father, Henry VII, and Elizabeth of York. Young Henry VIII spent quite a lot of his youth here. He spent much of his early childhood in other places, but from the age of 13 or so, he was back living here under the close watch of his father, obviously keen that Henry should turn out to be the sort of king he could be proud of. We know that Henry had an apartment, in Greenwich Palace, and that the entrance and exits to it all led through his father's rooms, so that Henry the Seventh would always know what young Henry the Eighth was doing, where he was going, when he would be back, etc., etc. There was a Spanish ambassador at the time who left us a description of how closely Henry was monitored. He does not speak a word except in reply to what the king asks him, and he went on to explain that yes, Henry was allowed to go out to the park opposite but that he was always closely guarded. We know that it was here that Henry learnt to joust and ride and fight in tournaments. There's a description written in May 1508, talking about him, quote, practising the first moves in warfare with his martial companions. The writer goes on to explain that Henry spent much of most days doing exactly this, wearing full armour, learning how to joust, Here's a description from John Guy, author of Henry VIII in the Penguin Monarch series. Participants took turns to ride along a barrier 
in the tilt yard that divided the contestants in a real-life tournament before taking aim with their lance at a ring suspended from a post which replaced the opponent in a genuine contest. Whoever speared the ring with his lance the most times after a set number of courses would be declared the winner. Henry at this point was 17 or 18 years old, so just becoming a young man and a Spanish ambassador, not sure if it's the same one or a different one, left us a description of him at this point. The young Henry, he said, was, quote, already taller than his father, and his limbs are of a gigantic size. And it was at around this time that Henry's first marriage to Catherine of Aragon took place in a quiet ceremony in the Franciscan church at Greenwich, followed a few months later by a very extravagant coronation said to have been conducted in high pomp at Westminster Abbey on Midsummer's Day. Princess Mary, daughter of Henry and Catherine, was born here at Greenwich Palace. It was also here that Henry fell in love with Anne Boleyn, inviting her, for example, to spend Christmas here at Greenwich one year, with Catherine also present, and his second wedding to Anne took place also exactly here. When it came to Anne's coronation, that began with a river trip from Greenwich up to the Tower of London. In the chapter on Anne in The Six Wives of Henry VIII, written by Antonia Fraser, there are some lovely descriptions of this very momentous occasion. So we're talking about June 1533, when Anne was apparelled in rich cloth of gold, as a contemporary observer wrote. A writer who goes on to explain that she was escorted, quote, by fifty great barges, comely beseen. All these barges and boats were draped with awnings, carpeted. There were minstrels on board playing music. Guns were fired to add to the excitement. Again, a contemporary writer wrote, it seemed as if all the houses must tumble to the ground. Such a noise were the guns making. So really quite the occasion. And all of this starting out from Greenwich. It was at Greenwich too that Anne's first baby was born just a few months after this, in September 1533, a daughter, the Princess Elizabeth. Not, of course, what Henry actually wanted. It was here that Anne herself signed a document announcing the news to everybody, a document which began as follows. And where, as it hath pleased the goodness of Almighty God, of his infinite mercy and grace, to send unto us at this time good speed in the deliverance and bringing forth of a prince. That's where the problems began, because in fact they had to add an S to the word so that it would read princess. The document had been written in advance in the expectation that the much longed for son would indeed be born. Henry wasn't really a man to tolerate disappointment, and so the rest of Anne's story, not of course a happy one, played out pretty quickly. Miscarriages, a stillbirth, and her replacement by Jane Seymour. Henry also courted Jane at Greenwich Palace, and it was at Greenwich too that Anne was arrested and taken before the court commissioners to hear the charges against her, those of adultery and incest and conspiracy to murder the king. Found guilty, it was never going to be otherwise, she was then taken by boat from Greenwich to the Tower. When Anne had arrived at Greenwich three years earlier, the palace had been decorated with badges in honour of her. Those for Catherine of Aragon had been ripped down and replaced, but at this point Anne's two were removed so that they could be replaced by those of Jane Seymour. It was also at Greenwich that Henry married his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. After Henry's death, when his son Edward became king, it was here to Greenwich that Edward came at the age of 15 to convalesce 
or so he hoped, from his illness, but where, in fact, he died. Queen Elizabeth I often spent time at Greenwich too, especially in the summer. It was, for example, from here that she met the Golden Hind back from its journey around the globe under its captain, Francis Drake. Also in Greenwich it was that she signed the death warrant for her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots. And it was also here in Greenwich Palace that the Queen met with her council to discuss what to do about the great threat from Spain and to plan England's defence against the Armada. In the middle of the 17th century, under Cromwell, the palace fell into disrepair until eventually, in the 1660s, it was demolished. So really its heyday was the Tudor period. It was often the centre of the royal court, a place where diplomacy could be conducted, important guests being received in style. It was the centre of shipping and exploration at a time when these things were taking on a global importance. We know, for example, that during his short reign, King Edward VI used to see ships and explorers off from here. Here, for example, is a description of a day in the year when he died, when he came out from central London to Greenwich especially, to see off a ship that was going off to explore the Americas. Quote, the king removed from Westminster by water to Greenwich and passed by the tower, and there were a great shot of guns and chambers, and all the ships shot off guns all the way to Ratcliffe, and there the three ships that was rigging there, appointed to go to Newfoundland, shot guns and chambers a great number. Really quite the send-off. And a reminder that it was from here in Greenwich that Brits set off to explore the world. But it was also a great place for royals showing off. Banquets, tournaments, guests, music, masked balls, you name it. In 1527, for example, Henry VIII had a temporary banqueting house set up so that he could stage a four-day exhibition of all his best works of art, described by John Guy, the author of Henry VIII, in the Penguin Monarch series as, quote, his most prized tapestries and two gigantic cupboards stacked high with his finest gold and silver plate. There were, of course, plenty of moments of drama too. It was here at Greenwich that Henry suffered his accident when he fell off a horse in January 1536. He was jousting, his opponent managed to unseat him, he landed heavily, and this reopened an old leg wound, an abscess developed which troubled him for the rest of his life, and that, and the fact that he was so enormous in his later years, meant that he was less and less able to dance and joust and do all those things he'd so enjoyed, especially at Greenwich. It was at another tournament in the same year, 1536, when he showed his furious jealousy. He and Anne Boleyn were watching two opponents just ready to joust. Anne dropped a handkerchief, and one of the jousters, one Henry Norris, picked it up and tucked it into his armour as a sort of good luck token. Anne seemed quite charmed by this. Henry was absolutely seething. Result, a day or two later, poor Norris was arrested, taken to the tower, and eventually executed. Henry made sure that Anne was forced to watch this. I think perhaps the phrase never a dull moment would be an apt summary of the era of the Tudors at Greenwich Palace. That era was to come to an end, of course, but the link between royalty and Greenwich certainly didn't end. And the next phase began with the building of the Queen's house. The Queen it was originally designed for was Anne, wife of James I, but she died before it was complete, so then it was given by their son Charles to his wife, Henrietta Maria a beautiful palace 
and to this day one of the reasons why people ship out from central London to Greenwich. James I got the idea in 1613, apparently after a marital quarrel. His wife had somehow accidentally managed to shoot his favourite hunting dog. He got furious with her and lost his temper, and then was sorry that he'd been so cross. To make amends, he gave his wife a building called the Queen's Lodgings, and provided the wherewithal for her to have it rebuilt and updated and made into a wonderful palace. This was in the summer of 1617. The architect Inigo Jones was duly hired, lots and lots of money was amassed, and work began. Unfortunately though, just two years later, in 1619, Queen Anne died, at the age of only 44. People lost interest in the project, things slowed down a bit, but ten years later, Charles I decided that he would have the palace completed as a gift for his French wife, Henrietta Maria. She was fashionable, she was a great patron of the arts, and so she set about commissioning paintings and sculptures. She made sure there was plenty of music played in the house, she liked to organise mask balls, and it became quite the centre for culture and enjoyment. The chequered history continued, though, because Henrietta Maria was a very devoted Catholic, a fact which contributed greatly to her unpopularity with the general people meaning that, in the end, she fled to France. The civil war which followed in the 1640s could easily have been the end of queens and palaces, but in fact, at the Restoration, Charles and Henrietta Maria's son, Charles II, was back on the throne, and he granted the house then to his wife, Catherine. And in fact, in a heartwarming touch, the two of them invited Charles's mother, Henrietta Maria, to come back to Greenwich, which she duly did. They met her down at the riverside, and she lived once again in the palace. When it came to the reign of William and Mary in the 1680s, the house fell out of favour again. They preferred Hampton Court, and so gradually other uses were found for the Queen's house. It became a grace and favour residence that a monarch could grant to various people they wanted to please, courtiers and what not. Later it became a hospital, eventually it was turned into a school, and it was only more recently in the 20th century that a grand restoration project was undertaken and the house was open to the public and became the museum and art gallery that it is today. So, if you go to visit, what should you see? One of the most significant things about the building is the design of the building itself, said to be the country's very first neoclassical building. Inigo Jones had been to Italy, he'd studied Renaissance villas, and he wanted to create something equally beautiful here in Greenwich. Hence the elegant proportions, the columns on the front, the general air of style and sophistication. If you go inside, you should definitely linger in the hall, which is a very beautiful room. It's a cube, measuring about 40 feet in all directions, gorgeous black and white marble floor, a wooden gallery running all around the first floor, and a glorious white and gold colour scheme, as designed when it was first built, white and gold being the colours of France, so they wanted to please Henrietta Maria, do look up at the lovely white ceiling with the gold fleck motifs, which gives a feeling that you're standing in, I don't know, a jewellery box. One of the things the house is best known for is what's called the tulip staircase, significant because it was England's first ever spiral staircase that was not actually supported centrally. The stone steps are cut so precisely that they lock into each other and into the wall. If you have an engineering sort of mind, you can probably appreciate how amazing that is. If you haven't, though, just enjoy the beauty of it. 
the way it spirals elegantly up and round and up again ceilingwards, and particularly the gorgeous blue wrought iron railings, all designed in a flower pattern, said to look like tulips, hence the name, the tulip staircase, but believed possibly actually to have been lilies. The lily was the royal flower of France, and again this was seen as a tribute by the designers to Henrietta Maria. Anyway, a thing of beauty it certainly is. You can look round much of the rest of the house and be impressed by rooms like the presence chambers, one each for the king and the queen, and admire the really quite significant art collection held here. Perhaps the standout picture is the one known as the Armada Portrait, so a portrait of Queen Elizabeth I commemorating England's victory. She's there in full regalia, lots of strings of pearls, has her hand on a globe to signify, I suppose, world dominance or something. And if you look behind her, through the window out to sea, there are passing ships. There are quite a lot of other well-known pictures here. A Canaletto painting of the River Thames, for example. Other royal portraits, naval battles, pictures of Greenwich itself. All nice to wander around. I noticed that in a book called London's Houses, they were very complimentary about the Queen's house, writing that it is, quote, a building truly deserving of the hackneyed phrase architectural gem. So yes, definitely worth a look. And if you go, maybe think about those royal persons who've passed through it over the centuries. And remember perhaps that it was at its happiest when Henrietta Maria lived here. She described it as a place to enjoy every pleasure the heart could desire with a husband who adored me. And when you consider what was to come next, her fleeing to France, the civil war, the execution of her husband and so on, then that's really rather poignant, is it not? The connections between Greenwich and royalty continued after that though. William and Mary, as mentioned, didn't really like it here. They preferred to live in Hampton Court. But it was Queen Mary who was responsible for another Greenwich institution, the Royal Hospital for Seamen. She wanted to create a home for elderly and injured seamen who'd served their country and now needed to live out their days in security. And the reason to mention this today is because one of the most stunning things to see in Greenwich is exactly there in that building, something called the Painted Hall. I did see a description somewhere comparing it to the Sistine Chapel in Rome, and I think that might be slightly exaggerated. But nevertheless, it remains true that in the Painted Hall, if you look up, you will see the most amazing, glorious painted ceiling. It's one of those pictures with a message. It was painted to celebrate the triumph of the Protestant monarchy being restored in England. William and Mary had been invited to rule precisely because they were Protestants, and lots of people wanted to celebrate this, so the painting shows the two of them bang in the centre, triumphant because they're ruling, and also triumphant because they have vanquished Catholicism. This being shown in the figure of poor Louis the Fourteenth, who's grovelling on the floor under William's foot, holding a broken sword to represent the fact that he has been defeated. There's all sorts of other symbolism in the painting too. My advice would be to get one of those audio guides when you go and look at it and have it all explained to you. So that's the bigger half of the painted hall. But at the end, there are steps leading up into a second room with some equally significant paintings one on the ceiling and one on the walls. Up on the ceiling, there's Queen Anne and her husband, so Mary's Protestant sister Anne, who ruled after the death of her sister and brother-in-law, 
and then much larger and more significantly on the back wall, a huge painting of George I and his numerous relatives, all designed to show that the line of succession, brackets Protestant, was now very strong. Look at that, his son, his grandson, a whole host of other relations. There was no danger of the Protestant succession coming under any sort of threat. And actually, it's in the Painted Hall that George I was very first greeted by England's Protestant elite when he arrived in the country, having been summoned here to rule. He was, I think, only 50-something in the line of succession, but since he was the first Protestant, he was the one that was chosen. Such a massive promotion was it to rule over England, he left Hanover and came to London. In September 1714, in fact, and it was quite an arrival. 260 horse-drawn carriages brought him and 90 of his ministers from Germany and his courtiers and both his German mistresses, known by the public ever after as the fat one and the thin one. Charming. I think it's fair to say that he remained very German until the end of his days and never really settled in England or indeed was particularly liked by most of his subjects. He took off back to Hanover every summer for as long a break as he could muster. And when he was in London, he surrounded himself with Germans, never really learnt the English language, didn't bother himself too much, apparently, with the running of the country. But the important point was, he was here and he was Protestant. There's a terrible quote from one Bishop Richard Willis explaining why this was so important. He wrote, A Protestant country can never have stable times under a popish prince, any more than a flock of sheep can have quiet when a wolf is their shepherd. That, I'm afraid, was the popular thinking in the England of the 18th century. So when you stand in the Painted Hall and look at those portraits of the Protestant monarchs, William, Mary, Anne and George, and at the prospect of their relations and descendants ruling forever, just bear all that in mind. Coming then to the present day, what else is there to see in Greenwich? Well, lots of things. The National Maritime Museum, for example being the world's largest maritime museum. It's also a library and archive, etc., etc. Absolutely stuffed full of books and charts and paintings and objects and actually some boats, even. Lots of galleries spread over, I think it's three different floors, galleries with titles like Tudor and Stuart Seafarers, Pacific Encounters, Polar Worlds. So a place where you can learn about ships and sailing and seafaring and exploration over the centuries. And, still on the subject of shipping, don't miss the Cutty Sark, the world's only surviving tea clipper, i.e. one of those very stylish sailing ships that used to go speedily from England out to far-off places, bringing back tea from China and India, for example, bringing back wool from Australia. This particular ship boasts the record-breaking trip from Australia to Britain, 73 short days. You can learn its story, you can walk all over it, it's been wonderfully restored, you can see the masts and the rigging, you can go inside, inspect the bunks and the galleys and the ship's wheel, and because of the way it's on display, it's been hoisted up, you can walk underneath it and see that wonderful shape that made it the fastest ship of its time. Then there's the Royal Observatory up there at the top of Greenwich Park, home, of course, of the idea of Greenwich Mean Time. Established, in fact, in 1675 by Charles II, who wanted his scientists and inventors to solve some of the problems of the day. He began by appointing the first ever royal astronomer and told him his task was 
and I'm quoting here from the guidebook, to apply himself with the most exact care and diligence to rectifying the tables of the motions of the heavens and the places of the fixed stars, so as to find out the so much desired longitude of places for perfecting the art of navigation. I think roughly translated that means use everything you know about science to make it much easier to find our way all over the globe when sailing. There's lots to look round up there. You can go to Flamsteed House where the astronomer lived and studied and made apparently over 30,000 observations. I found it slightly sad then to realise that he described his own life as being rather dull. He did all this meticulous investigating and recording of data and everything and described his life as being, quote, tedious and full of ennui. I hope that was just a down moment and that he realised he was pushing back the frontiers of knowledge on behalf of the rest of us. You can look at some of the quadrants and telescopes and all the other gizmos and gadgets that were developed. You can stand on a strip in the courtyard representing the meridian line, so the line of zero longitude, something agreed apparently internationally in 1884, despite, if I remember rightly, quite a lot of opposition from the French who thought it should be, I'm imagining, somewhere in France. You can read the story of lots of other astronomers, so the Halley, who, after whom Halley's Comet is named, for example, definitely somewhere that makes a really interesting visit. So there are lots of reasons to go to Greenwich for the day. In fact, a day won't be long enough. You're going to have to go two or three times if you really want to see and do all that it has to offer. And I have yet to mention Greenwich Town itself. I think it's always had quite a lively reputation, in common with other places where ships land and sailors abound. It was, for example, in the 18th and 19th centuries, well known for something called the Greenwich Fair, a huge and very popular shindig that used to take place twice a year, at Easter and at Whitson. It was an event, in fact, attended by one Charles Dickens, who wrote in one of his sketches by Boz that the main entertainment for the young men, at least, was to drag young ladies up the steep hill of the park and then drag them down again at the very top of their speed, as he put it, quote, greatly to the derangement of their curls and bonnet caps. But actually, it was much racier than that. One description I read explained that as night fell, the action moved to town, where there were, quote, itinerant theatres, menageries, objects of curiosity like dwarfs and giantesses, and a temporary ballroom. Its reputation grew. In the 1830s, they began to bring people from central London on steam ferries and trains to Greenwich. So the crowds got bigger and bigger, the event became more and more raucous, until, in the end, a halt had to be called. A quote from a book called Maritime Greenwich tells us that, in 1857, after 30 years of complaint, respectable local residents succeeded in abolishing the fair, which the Greenwich Free Press called that old market of vice and debauchery. There are still some significant pubs in Greenwich today, notably the Trafalgar Tavern, also known to Dickens, plenty of shops and cafes, and of particular interest, I think, Greenwich Market, open every day, I think. It's a covered market, built originally in the 1820s, definitely aiming for a different vibe than that created by the Greenwich Fair, because over the entrance went up what I think must be a biblical quotation, which reads, A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight his delight. It's a bustling covered market, more than a hundred stalls, I believe. Lots of little boutique shops. You can buy antiques and jewellery, 
arts and crafts. There's a second-hand bookstore. A very interesting wander, and perhaps most importantly, if you're out and about for the day, an excellent food market. So lots and lots of stalls selling all kinds of street foods. Falafel, empanadas, spicy this and piquant that. Not many places to sit down in there, but if you want to just grab some street food and carry on looking round, definitely the place to find a whole selection of snacks from all over the world. So then, just one more reason to attract you to the idea of a day or two in Greenwich. Let me leave the last words to a guidebook called Maritime Greenwich, whose authors are rightly very proud of all they have to offer. Quote, Nowhere else in the United Kingdom has so many outstanding buildings designed by our most classical architects. Though its royal and other famous inhabitants have gone, they would still easily recognise the park, the great buildings and the bustling urban scene. Greenwich, they say, is an island in the city where the story of Britain and the sea and of time itself can be enjoyed in a unique architectural and landscape setting. Indeed, quite so. That's exactly how I found it. And so that brings us to the end of today's episode. I can only hope that I've managed to enthuse you for the idea of visits to Greenwich. And I hope too that you'll find time to join me next week when we're going to go back through central London and have an episode dedicated to those wonderful green lungs of the city, the parks. Surely, surely one of the most attractive reasons for visiting London. There's a whole selection, they all have their own stories, and I shall be telling some of them next week. So I hope very much that you'll join me for that. And for the moment, thank you very much for your company today, and goodbye. <laughs>